Welcome mountain bikers. We have a special treat today. Lee Trumpour sat down with Martin Whiteley and what was supposed to be, I don't know, a five or 10 minute interview turned out to be almost an hour long discussion about what World Cup downhill is, where it's come from a little bit and where it's going. If you're not aware, Martin Whiteley is one of the most consistent and influential and important people in World Cup mountain biking, specifically when we're talking downhill. He's been there since the beginning as a racer. He's been a UCI delegate. He's run teams, currently running the YT Mop, and he's best known for being an encyclopedia of all things World Cup. It's a real treat that Lee got to sit down with Martin uh, back in Croatia, and we're stoked to have this launch right now with Fort William just a couple days away. So enjoy. And yeah, learn some facts. It's pretty freaking sweet. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Martin. This Vital MTB Inside Line podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Shop for great deals and get professional advice on your favorite bikes, components, and riding gear. Over 2 million happy cyclists served since 1994. Visit JensenUSA.com slash the Inside Line podcast and use code Inside Line for 10% off qualifying items. Maxis Tires. Where the rubber meets the dirt, Maxis makes no compromise tires for any rider, any trail, any time. All right. Here with Martin Whiteley, the first World Cup of the season. Who better to speak to about the general health of World Cup racing than a man who's pretty much seen it all, almost done it all. Um, he's incredibly knowledgeable. And thanks for taking the time on race day morning to sit down with us and, and give us some of your thoughts. Good to be here. Um, so real quick, just a brief introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your current job description is, and, and, and some highlights from, from the past couple of years. We can keep it br- brief. Right. Yes. Currently, I'm the team owner of YT Mob, a team that Aaron Gwynn put together and invited me to organize for him. And prior to that, had teams Trek World Racing on the Team G-Cross and Global Racing, so I've had four race teams. Before that was UCI Technical Delegate, and before that the CEO of Cycling Australia. It's <laughs> impressive. And um, All right, let's get into it. Rob Warner mentioned you quite a bit in the last Inside Line podcast. Mm-hmm. Give yeah. me a Rob Warner story. Well, I love Rob. I mean, Rob tells it how he sees it, you know, and if you're friends with him after 20 years, you're in a good spot. So, um, but yeah, when I was technical delegate in Leger, uh, his team manager turned up with his race license at registration and for the photo ID where the athlete must have their picture, there was a picture of Pamela Anderson with her tits out. And I said to <laughs> Johan, are you serious? And he said, it's Rob. And I said, okay. So let's turn this around on him you need to inform him that the UCI has a very strict policy on falsification of identity especially on legal documents and the minimum fine that the UCI imposes across all disciplines is 10,000 Swiss francs so he needs to pay that or he can't leave Leger and 
So we set that up. Johan went back and he said, Martin will come looking for you. And I must have walked past that tent three times and Rob ran around the back of the truck. He hid <laughs> under the trailer. So it was, it was, you know. So we go back a long way. That's, that's I think, 96. So, you know, there's mutual respect. We've commentated together. Um, and I currently work for Red Bull, House, giving them the stats and helping him with his fact sheets so that he knows... You know that it is Greg Manar's 22nd World Cup season, or there's only been three men who've won round one who've won the overall in the last 20 years, and things like that. It's what I think is great for the fans because it puts things in context. It's great to watch the race on the day, but what did that win really mean to Rider X and and so on? So I think now that we're 25 years old, we can boast a history and we can talk about things that we've achieved and we can talk about milestones, and that's what a statistician does. That's it's really great for that's great because a lot of people are new to the sport and don't necessarily know the history and how the World Cup as it is right now is mm. quite different than it was 10 years ago. Just like a lot of us are in other sports that we follow, you know, if I follow downhill skiing, you know, this guy that just won his third time at Kitzbühel, is that a big deal? Have a lot of people done that? Is that the first time that was done? Yeah. It just gives more context to what's going on and and that's why you know i i love doing that part of it because you feel that you can give the show just that little extra spice enhancement context and and we should be proud of it and the fact that we're riding on a track here where a lot of people are saying oh, it's never been this rocky well yeah it was a cap die the cap die didn't have jumps and so you can say yeah we you know we're seeing something new here it is the first time in croatia but it's not the first time we've had rocks at this <coughs> level but you know all that stuff's really cool and uh, i spent a lot of time more time than people can imagine building profiles and data there's no point knowing that this is the fifth time that someone with a red bike did the triple you know things like that aren't really important so you've got to weed out what's relevant or turn a stat into a nugget and that's yeah. that's the interesting thing that i find that's yeah, cool and I didn't realize how much time you spent behind the scenes until I, I heard Rob talk about it. Mm. I've always known you as a guy who, who was a sort of encyclopedia of information. Well, the cool thing, too, in the cross countries is that um, I went to Stellenbosch just for the joy of watching the first mountain bike World Cup sponsored by Mercedes. I didn't have any riders. Well, you know, I, we don't have a cross country team. I, I manage a couple of athletes, but I just wanted to go see it. But during that race, you know, I was trying to text them and let them know this is the first time a Kiwis won a World Cup. But normally I'm at home during a cross-country single, watching it on Red Bull TV with a direct line to the line producer and sending information in saying, you know, this Ukrainian woman, this is the first time ever, or this will be, you know, if this woman wins, she'll be the oldest woman ever to win a World Cup. Yeah. No German has ever won in Germany, you know, things like yeah. that, that then gets thrown into Rob's ear while he's while the other commentator's talking, Bart or Claudio, and then he has it, and then he can run with it. So it is almost live update stats, because we don't know, especially in cross-country, who's going to be leading or who's going to win or what the stat could be. And it's unfolding much slower, in a way, than downhill, where he only has a minute to talk yeah. for each rider. And in cross-country, you might have the same five people on TV for an hour. So you've got to give them stuff to work with. So yeah, that's, I, I really enjoy that stuff. And I enjoy it as a spectator with other sports when there are interesting stats and things that put things in context so yeah yeah it's great and I, I think I speak for a lot of people and I say thanks for doing that um, it really does add a bit of a human element to, mm. the, to the racing that, that people can appreciate um, speaking of racing and, and the reason we're all here for World Cup downhill you mentioned to me yesterday that you thought this is perhaps the healthiest the series has been since maybe 1997 yes 
Could you elaborate on that a, a little bit? Yeah, I mean, back in the day when Grundig was the sponsor, and there are, I've got athletes on the team who weren't born when Grundig was sponsoring it. Well, we've got people listening who probably don't know what Grundig, well, Grundig is. is. <laughs> Grundig is an electronics company. It's, I think, part of the Philips family now, but it was uh, very big in Europe. And prior to the UCI even forming uh, the World Cup, Grundig and their agency AMC were running European race, races under the name Grundig for, for cross-country and downhill. And so they came to the UCI with a big sponsorship deal. It was a multi-million dollar deal. And there was great prize money. There was a million Swiss francs prize money across the season for all the categories. And, uh, and I was the technical delegate during that time. It was a very exciting time. We were live on Eurosport every Sunday in Europe going into more than... And a 15 million households direct, and it was a big deal. And uh, that's if you ask Greg Menard, where did you first see World Cup racing? It was on TV, it was the Grundings. So that was very healthy. That's when you'd win a world title and you were offered a six figure salary the next day. Yeah. Yeah, it was healthy and, and it was deserving when you compare it to other sports, even other cycling disciplines. People were getting paid the right amount, the trucks were exciting, the fans loved it. And then we went into a, a financial decline when Grundig left. Um, the UCI struggled to find a sponsor, and and it became very difficult. And I and I left around that time too because you didn't have much to work with. the The sponsorship was one tenth of what it was, mm-hmm. uh, which meant you couldn't do TV production. You had no money to pay for it. No TV meant no exposure. Meant no investment from teams, uh, sponsors. Athletes were on lower salaries, and I remember Manar saying, "Well, I peaked at the right time, didn't I?" You know, so it was tough. It was really tough during, I would say, two thousand to two thousand and four. Yeah. About when did the when did Grundig and the and the TV all leave? Uh, it was roughly the age. Yeah, ninety eight, ninety nine. Ninety eight was, I think, the last Grundig year. Ninety nine was Diesel. Yeah. Um, uh, but the agency left before that. So there was a, the president of the UCI at the time was, was a Dutchman. He didn't trust the German agency that were running it saying Grundig's on the way out. It's a company that's suffering. We need to take it back on board. Part of the deal with Grundig was that we will give you a licensing fee and let the agency run it. A bit like MotoGP is run by Dorna, a bit like Formula One is run by its own agency and not by the FIA. So the UCI should have been a rule body. An agency runs the sport. We give you a license fee. You make up your rules. You send your anti-doping people, but let us run it because yep. we live or die by the profit of it. And then the teams and the athletes benefit because these guys are generating great revenue and great TV. A lot of people look at world governing bodies and saying, are you really the best people to be marketing in the yeah. sport? You know, are you really the guys? Because yeah, they're, they're not promoters. That's not right. their job. Yeah. Primarily, it's not their job. They, they might try to say, I mean, they've got their world championships, which is their pinnacle. And I've worked there, so I can say these things without sounding like I'm sounding off on the UCI. On the other hand, without the UCI, we wouldn't have what we have now. They stuck with this when it was in the red for many years. And any CEO of a federation, as I was, would look down his balance sheet and say, why are we running this property if we're paying hand over fist every year when every other property is making money? What are we doing it for? Why are we doing it? Because we love it. We love it. The staff at the UCI love it. They believe in mountain biking and they fought for it. And if they hadn't fought for it, we wouldn't have got through those dark years and we wouldn't be where we are now, which is the highest TV rated property that Red Bull Media House has. Really? We, we are probably the most exciting and dynamic discipline from a UCI point of view outside of their road discipline. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's great. So, you know, it's very easy to say uh, 
screw the UCI. We see that all the time from people who don't know anything about what goes on behind the scenes of putting this together. And you could run off Monster or another sponsor could turn up and say, hey, let's do a World Series. And all the teams would trot off with them for three years and then say, okay, that's done. And then you're left on an island with nothing. You need the infrastructure of a world governing body to do your anti-doping, to mark the courses, to do the safety, to do the insurance, to make sure that everyone rides in an equal playing field. An equal playing field. We saw it in the first year of EWS when there was talks of cheating and all this sort of stuff and doping and you need the infrastructure of a world governing body. Do they need to run it? Maybe not. Maybe they don't want to in the future. It was their job to nurse it through those difficult years, yeah. get it to where it is now, sponsored by Mercedes-Benz. We're not sponsored by Rocky Roads. We're sponsored by Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> and that's a big deal. And once that gets up and running, maybe Mercedes-Benz comes in and says, you guys are doing an amazing job. We've got an agency that we'd like to help run it. Or Red Bull might take on more responsibility. And I'm sure the UCI would say, as long as we're running the rules and we're looking at the, the, that everyone's got a level playing field, the less we have to do, the better on the marketing side. The, you know. So I, I, I think we're on that path. And so I have no qualms about where we are right now. I think it's the strongest we've been, like I said, in 20 years. Yeah. I remember you know, sort of the, the short version of it is a Palmer left and all the money left too, but it's Palmer just left at the same time and the lights were going out yeah, <laughs> before yeah. that. Yeah, I think, you know... To, he wasn't the last guy to leave the party, no. but he could see it was winding down. Um, so it's, it, there's no cause and effect there. But I think, um, you know, essentially when you, when you lose TV production, it doesn't matter whether Palmer's in the sport or not, yeah. you don't have a sport that's viable for the sort of budgets it takes to run a professional. You had kids in America choosing motocross over mountain bikes because their parents <coughs> are saying, Never even heard of this downhill stuff. Mm -hmm. We don't see it on TV. I, I would also <coughs> argue that the loss of Norba was a major thing. You yeah. know, we often get this argument that World Cup is so elitist, you put 60 guys in the final now, not 80. The same number of people can enter this race as before. You need the same 40 points. Where we aren't a participation sport is at the grassroots level. We don't have races on the calendar. Cross country has six times more events than us on the UCI calendar. And whose fault's that? That's not the World Cup's fault. That's not the league teams or the athletes' fault. It's the National Federation's fault. And they are the members of the UCI. They are the ones who decide what events to sanction, what events to promote, and what commissaires to train. And if they don't promote a proper national series, Portugal does a great job. Britain used to, doesn't anymore. Yeah. IXS does a great job, but that's nothing to do with the Federation. Pro-GRT is just starting to get up from, from a prone position. But, uh, you know, Norba used to be the king outside of the World Cup. Now, that's where, if we can build up calendar events, that's when it becomes a participation sport. And then you'll be able to find out where the talent is and they'll funnel their way up to the top events, Crankworks and then World Cup. But this should always be the very, very best in the world. That's, that's what makes it attractive. I remember... I think it was 2007 when the UCI changed the rules for how many points you had to have. And the reaction was, oh my, my goodness, the sport's going to die. Mm -hmm. No one in North America can get these points. And this was, I think we had to have five points instead yes. of one. Yes. And now I think, what are we up to, 40? Yes. And, and look at how many North Americans we have yes. just in the top 
you know, in the in the final sixty mm. this weekend. I haven't added it up yet, but it's it used to be one or zero mm. just a couple of years ago. And so right. that didn't kill the sport. No. And cutting down to sixty people is not going to kill the sport. No, 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 no. Um, and in fact, that doesn't change the TV product. You'll see exactly the same thing on TV, if not better. And it, what we've seen is it actually pushed. Look, it pushed my third guy, Angel. You know, he's come out of uh, a year of injury, and he knew he had to get into the sixty, and that just pushes them a little bit harder to really focus on their game during the week, not say, well, you know, I can get in the eighty. Sixty's a little tighter. And so you have to work for it. And, and not to not to pick on Angel, but his first year on the team, he struggled to make the top 80 a few times. Yes, he did. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's and, and he's a different athlete now. He qualified 26th. He did the work over winter. He, he's got the same coach as Aaron now. So, you know, yeah, it makes you stop and think, wow. Now, if I'm an independent rider, what am I doing this for? Am I doing it in the hope that one day I bust out a great result and I get on a pro team? Or am I doing it because I love it? And if you're doing it because you love it, then you should be screaming for more races like IXS and Pro GRTs and just keep racing and loving it. If you're trying to get on the pro team, then you need to do the work and then you need to get noticed at those results. So there are two different ways of looking at independent riders. I've, I've run independent teams, you know, I've put my own money into riders and put them out there. I know what it's like to spend money and get nothing in return. So, um, no, I think the UCI World Cup should, should always be for the very, very best in the world, and the TV show, which we've seen in the ratings too. While it shows 25 men, the ratings go up exponentially for the last 10 on camera. It's not just a gradual rise. A whole bunch of people just tune in for the last 10 riders, which is about a 40-minute show. So, yeah, you get on TV, but your goal is to get your guys in one of the 10 because the, the million viewers you want are coming in towards the end. They don't watch the whole show. So, and I'm the same with downhill skiing. I don't watch every single run. I come down to crunch time and see who's going to win. So, I think that's that's an interesting point. But for me, I've got a local kid that lives not far from me. He's probably number five to ten in Spain. He has a hundred points. So he's coming to. And how do you get those hundred points? He went to the Portuguese race series, and the Portuguese race series has Britain. It has French, British, French, Spanish, Portuguese riders there. And the Federation benefits, their riders benefit. They, who's the European champion right now? He's Portuguese. Pardal? Yes. So what I'm really trying to get to is that people need to hammer their Federation saying, you're taking my license money, give me some damn racing. And then we'll get our calendar as full as the cross-country calendar. And then you're a participation sport. So that, that's my big beef at the moment. Having run a federation and having started a national series in 1990 in Australia, which gave us Michael Ronning and S Scott Sharples and the list goes on in Australia, Nathan Rennie, that's because we ran a national series. Australia isn't a mountainous country, but we have some of the greatest riders in the world. And, and if you look at the tracks in the current national series in Australia, they're not the world's greatest no. tracks. They're right. not tall mountains. They're not horribly technical, but they produce have produced for decades some of the best racers. And so did Britain when they had a great British series. France always have great national series. New Zealand has a national series. Great riders, Blinky, you can name hundreds of them actually. You know, and, and Brooke McDonald and George Brannigan, the so, Windmasters, so many come from a little country because they have a national series. So how many are coming from, you know, other countries that don't have a great national Germany doesn't have a great national series that I know or Italy, so they might have some small races. But I think that's I think that's really key. So get in touch with your federation and say why aren't you giving me the racing for the license that I hold? Switch gears for 
for a second there, um, and you mentioned your funding races yourselves. I think for for people listening that may not know, that was around two thousand and two ish, I believe. And you you funded Maddie Leahy Coyne and Andrew Needling. Yes, on your Cesar own, Rojo. right? Cesar and Cesar Rojo, who's now back. Yes, with his own team, running his own team. Mm-hmm. So two thousand and three, well, two thousand one, we had a great deal. Then September 11 happened. The Japanese stock market crashed. My billionaire sponsor went to being a millionaire sponsor, so he had to focus on what really mattered. This is the global, Arai global team. Yeah, the Arai Mountain, the son of the founder of Sony, was our business partner. And so in the third year, there was no money, but I wanted to keep the team going as best as I could. Um, It meant selling some tires I had in the warehouse or whatever I had to scrape the money together because I truly believed that unless you're out there, you won't get noticed and we'd had an amazing first year so I, I just wanted to keep those guys racing it was on costs I paid their hotels and their bikes and stuff and bonuses but no salary just to keep the thing going but during that time of doing that and I, and I had to organize a ride for Greg so we got him on Hara so you know I was contractually bound to keep working with Greg but he understood that I didn't have the money and so we sold his contract to Haro and and so we kept going with what we had and during that time Honda saw us at the races and we went and chatted to them so if I hadn't been at Monsanto with the self-funded program I wouldn't have seen Honda there with their Japanese program we wouldn't have dinner we wouldn't have done what we did so you have to stick it out and and also during the time of running the Honda program I was running a team 23 degrees with Matty so the first year of Honda I was still funding Matty on his own so that he could still be out there racing because we couldn't fit him on the Honda program and eventually we could so we brought him in on the second year but yeah sometimes if you really believe in it there's no better thing to spend your money on you don't do it always it's always for business and passion but the ratio of those can vary and that was probably more 10% business and 90% passion 2003 um but it, yeah, it, I think good things come back to you if you if you if you stick with it. And uh, <clears throat> speaking of running running teams, there's a lot of the Honda program is, is sort of mythologized now. From you know, it's, it's been man, it's been gone for 11 years, which is yeah, yeah. just hard to believe. Hard but to believe. the aura around that team at mm. the time was huge, and mm. now it's still a bit of a mystery. What what was it like running the Honda team? The first. Okay, the first thing people have to understand is that Honda challenged their engineers with projects. Uh-huh. Solve this puzzle. It doesn't mean we want to build Learjets or robots commercially or mountain bikes, but there's something out there that needs updating or needs another look at, and I want you guys to exercise your brains. It's like a gym for engineers. <laughs> and, and there was one engineer there who'd been to uh, Big Bear and rented a bike, um, and he loved the idea of downhill racing, but he thought we can do something a bit different with this. And he took the head of two-wheel engineering, the man who des- who designed the gold wings, the man who's behind the CRF range, the head honcho with the biggest gold Honda card, credit card you can imagine, and took him to Mount <laughs> Fuji on a bike and took him for a ride down the hill in summer. He said, we need to do this. Uh-huh. We need to challenge our engineers. They both got to the bottom of the hill with the biggest grins on their faces and just said, let's do this. So they started that. It was just a way of challenging them. They never thought they'd go World Cup racing. It was just something they wanted to... They picked a couple of rides, and one of them in Japan was an ex-global racing rider, Naoki Itagawa. Oh, yeah. And so he contacted me and said, look what we're doing. Are you going to be at Monsanto? They want to come to Monsanto. So 
it was never a commercial idea. They, they, <clears throat> so I knew that it had a life span, not a long one. But we wanted to go win races for them. We wanted to do something interesting. But by, by chance, you know, and I often use this expression, you're judged by the company you, you keep. Honda coming to the World Cup drew Nissan's attention to the World Cup. And then they came in as title sponsor. So they're looking at it again, why are Honda doing this? What's so big about this sport? They brought Rubens Barrichello, Formula One guy, to the downtown of Lisbon to watch, you know, watch these bikes. And, and so it just generated in a time when things were pretty miserable for our sport, a lot of media buzz. BBC did stories on it. And it just started to say, hey, there is this sport still out there. So I think that was great. But um, there was a lot of, because HRC, Honda Racing Corporation, run all their teams the same way, whether it's MotoGP, Motocross, Formula One, we fell under that bracket. So we fall under the same hierarchy. They were the team owners. I was hired to run it. But we had an intranet for ordering parts. So things had barcodes and you'd scan something would arrive two days later from from Japan. And, and that was really fascinating. We had to record every single run of every single frame on a on a spreadsheet so that they knew how many miles every frame had done we you know we were doing um the sort of testing with sensors and telemetry that you're seeing you know some people do now we're doing that in 2004 where you could actually watch a replay on a laptop of the frame going down the hill and seeing the stresses it was under at different points in different colors so that was really exciting and it changed the way I managed teams. You know, it, it created the, the famous blue sheet, how we run things on a daily basis, how we report, what files we share. Because um, HRC are the kings of running race programs. And so I learned a lot from that. I learned a great deal. I was pretty bad uh, the first year of global racing. I didn't know what I was doing, despite the fact I thought I'd mined a lot of people's brains. I was making big mistakes that were costing me financially because I just didn't calculate things right. Honda really helped me get on track with that, and now the teams are much better because of that. So, yeah, it was fascinating. And then, you know, people say, oh, I don't believe they crushed them. Well, look, they, they keep examples of everything they do, but they don't have the room to keep everything they make. They just wouldn't be warehouses big enough. So, yeah, there's examples of each generation of the bike. And at the end of the contract, I negotiated that Greg get to keep a bike. Um, and... They said, okay, but we own it, but over the years it will depreciate. He'll have to sign for it every year, and then when it depreciates to a certain amount, he'll be able to keep it. So I'm really stoked that the man who made the Honda downhill bike so famous got to keep one. I'm jealous of him every time I see it, but yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It's hanging on the wall in his shop in South yeah, Africa. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just building a new museum slash office in Spain, and uh, I've been talking to Honda about getting one of their museum pieces on loan for that, so... Hopefully that that comes off. Cool. Um, and then you ran you ran the Trek program after that in, in various forms, and and now we're here with with YT. Yes. Um, this feels like a little bit different team setup for you. It's a little bit more, a lot more open and public than than the Honda team was. Mm. Is that something you've made a conscious effort to change over the years? Yeah. Look, the very first year of the, I mean, the Trek team was, was a team that concept, I, can't, I had 2008 off, I didn't run a team, I was, I helped Yeti out, I ran a couple of, I did a couple of World Cups as Yeti team manager to train their staff, I was Spanish team manager at Worlds, but I took a year off, and I 
I've always wanted to do a double team. I really admired Volvo Cannondale. That was my favorite team on the circuit, and I loved the idea that they were multidisciplined. So I wanted a cross-country downhill team. I put together an idea, and I went to various companies to try and sell it as a team owner, and Trek said they'd love to do it. We've got new equipment coming. We'd love to do a, a dual-discipline World Cup team. So that was a great partnership. And the first year, though, they came in and said, you need to loosen up a little bit. You know, it's just a little bit too rigid. And that was that was a hangover from Honda, you know, because if you know Japanese, they work very hard and they party very hard, but there's not much between on and off. And I had to learn to find the middle setting. And so, yeah, I needed someone from outside to say, that's how it feels to us. And so sat down with everyone. We tried to work out a more mellow way of doing it, whether it was team barbecues or whatever, and found a different path with that team. But that was quite a big team, a lot of riders, cross country and downhill, there's a lot of responsibility with that. With this team, Aaron walked in and said, I'd like, like you to do this, I want to have fun, I want to go racing and have fun. I don't really want a teammate I'm competing with every week, I want a teammate that I can help develop, that is going to bring a smile to my face every week, that I'm going to love hanging out with. And so immediately I thought of the right staff for that situation and he had his and Angel was just a natural pick for me he's just such a character and he is a young talent that's what YT stands for so you've got the the legend that is Aaron Gwynn raising the profile of the brand but Aaron uh, Angel as a young talent reinforcing the ethos of the brand so it made perfect sense and then we felt you know if either of these guys gets injured it's too much for Angel to carry on his own it's too lonely for Aaron on his own, so we need to have a third guy. So despite the fact that we were already locked in on budgets, we somehow found a way to bring him in, bring Nico in. So yeah, it's um, it, it, I guarantee you it's the happiest I've ever been on the road. So that that's a big part of what Aaron brought to it, but also the people we have. Um, just from, a, from an outside perspective, it, it hasn't gone unnoticed. It's starting the first year with YT, there was a visible change in, mm. you know, inside your tent, a little bit looser, a little bit more relaxed, a lot more smiling, and, and, yeah. and that was partly of Aaron's doing, what, yeah, he, partly. what he wanted to create for himself. Absolutely. And look, we, he, he had, that, that was one of his big conditions, and my only condition was that he'd be ready to win from race one. I didn't want specialized year one. I wanted him to guarantee me that the bike he was moving to and the components he was working with meant that he was ready to win from race one. Not win it, but ready to win it. And um, so if we got a podium in Lords round one, then he still would have achieved it. I didn't, ex you know, none of us expected what happened year one. That was amazing. But, you know, that also comes from YT. They're a German brand, but the guys who run it are very relaxed and fun guys. They've got a different ethos. And very important to me too, is that we're not number three or four in their list of priorities when it comes to team. We're not behind a Tour de France team. Mm -hmm. We're not behind a cross country team. Their primary thing is gravity. That's what they live for. That's what we are. And so, you know, we're the first priority when it comes to marketing or anything that needs to get done, frames need to get done. We don't have to wait in line. And and I'm not I'm not taking anything away from those bigger corporate companies. They have to invest in the Tour de France. That's where their bread and butter comes from too. But from my point of view, from a selfish point of view, it's nice to have a sponsor that is so focused on gravity. Um, talk to me for a second about 
spotting younger riders. You mentioned getting Angel on the team, but you've had an eye in the past for, if not having the riders on your team, but supporting them through through 23 degrees. How do you decide who's who's got it? How do you spot them at a young age? Is there something you look for, or do you just know it when you see it? Yeah, it's really quite hard to quantify because every one of them's been different. For Maddie and Blenkinsop, it was a riding style. Like I just, as soon as I saw them, you could see that they were so comfortable on the bike that they had something that you can't train, which is that talent, that two-wheel genetics. They're so comfortable on the bike. You can always get them to a coach and you can get them to do yoga and change their diet and get them to be a bit better with their being on time and all that sort of stuff. But you can't train talent. That's innate, in my opinion. So you have to see that rawness. And really, the first, and it was the same with Minar. I saw him in Stellenbosch in '97. He was a gangly little 16-year-old. You would never have imagined that he would grow into being one of the tallest riders on the circuit. He had string bean legs. He wasn't very fast, but the way he moved on a bike was extraordinary. And uh, wrote his name down. And he never did well at the World Champs in '97. I think he had a crash, so I sort of forgot about him. We went back to Stellenbosch in '98, and I think he got it. 40th or something like that and I went to his dad and I said have you ever taken him to Europe has he ever been out of South Africa and he said no 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 I said has he ever ridden on roots and mud he said this is what he rides on this stuff okay I think we need to get him to Europe because the UCI is turning 100 in the year 2000 and we've never as a federation had a world champion come from the continent of Africa despite there being 40 member nations and so many disciplines not one category, not one age group, not one discipline in a hundred years has there been a world champion from the continent of Africa. And I think this kid could be the junior world champion in 1999 before we turn a hundred. And I got the UCI's president's permission to get a little budget together, to bring him to Europe, to take him to French cups, to learn how to ride mud and roots. <laughs> he hated it the first few weeks there. He had five kilos of dried antelope meat in his bag to get... <laughs> he thought what else am I going to eat over there and um, antelope jerky yeah it was it was antelope jerky and and um, you know it was tough for him at the beginning he'd never been that far away from home before and it was also foreign and different language and but that was the starting point and never you know here we are this is his 22nd World Cup season we're still the best of mates we're in business together we're, we're great mates and so I'm very proud of everything that he has done if I hadn't spotted him, someone else would have at some point. He just had it. Um, so sometimes it's, I just happen to be in the right place to see that. But there's also a funny, I don't know, it's, a, it's a, an instinctual thing that happens. You just kind of know. Um, with Laurie Greenland, before we brought him onto track, that was just studying results. And I've been watching his results on the British series on important tracks like Fort William. Mm -hmm. And then I reached out to Cy Patton, who ran the British series, and said, is it just me, or has this kid got something? Because his results are showing. He said, no, Martin, he's, he's the real deal. You need to come and meet him. So we did that and went, saw him race in the UK before we, we signed him. So there, and, and Matty, you know, Matty was introduced to me um, by his, his manager at the time. And he just said, watch him in this race. And poor Matty crashed four times in Maribor just because he knew someone was watching him. <laughs> oh, no. But he had it, he had it, Mick Hanna had it, saw it, Mick Hanna in, in Sierra Nevada Worlds in 2000, he had a stomach bug and he rode in shorts and a t-shirt, but he rode like a beast, the kid's a beast, you know, and he still is, yes. you know, and Cesar Rojo, you know, you, there, there are guys that you just, you, when you see them, you just know, 
and I know every single case except one, Justin Leo, I've approached them before they've approached me because I've almost known it before they do. I don't mean that in an arrogant mm. way. They're sort of too busy trying to do their thing to know how they're perceived. Yeah. And then, so you sort of go up to them and they're a little bit surprised and, and you say, well, that's good. Let's try and work together and see what we can do. But Justin was different. He he was persistent and I didn't see it. And and eventually he, we came around and in the end, he's been one of the longest clients I ever had. And he had some really good success and he's a great ambassador for the sport so you know there's and Nico Mullally you know he's he's one when I first met in Whistler he was a 15 year old riding for Specialized America team he did great slaloms there and he, he he sat and asked me questions we were track he was specialized across the road we invited specialized over for a barbecue Monk was on the barbecue and um, this kid just sat there and asked me the most profound questions like about logistics and planning and how do you think, you know, what's the best ride in the world? What's his preparation for a race like? And not just like, oh, can I have a look at your truck? And these bikes are awesome. He was a methodical thinker. Yeah. And straight away, I could see he was an older head on a, on a junior rider's body. He was a mature kid from the beginning. Having, having spent some time with Nico when he was a young kid and then and he's gotten older, he's always struck me as someone who's quite analytical about mm -hmm. his bike setup. And I have to remind myself sometimes how young he is, because he does come across as being mature beyond his years. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and what he's doing now with U.S. downhill racing. Yeah. Um, he's he's yeah. interesting. And he's outside of, you know, our professional relationship. He's one of my, my best buddies. You know, we went traveling to, to Africa together. He's a great traveling companion. We get along really, really well. And so... Often he comes to me with ideas and advice saying, have you thought about doing this or whatever? You know, he reads me really well. So in that way, there's there's no holds barred. When he's having a great day, I know it. When he's having a shocking day, I know how to fix it. And so it's good to have that relationship, a really trusting relationship where you know the athlete will take your words on board. But then there are other times where this guy knows what he's doing. I'm not going to get in his head. He knows what he's doing. My best thing to do is to support him and just say, good on you, but I don't need to tell him how to do his job today. He knows what he's doing. So yeah, nearly all of them. It's, um, and it, it, Aaron, you know, that was, that was an interesting one too, because he clearly shot on the scene with his top 10 in Montserrat. And I was introduced to him by Justin Leo in, in, uh, Schlodming after Blinky won there. He said, you know, this guy, I think you could probably manage him. He's really new to the sport. And it's like, I don't know, I've already got two or three Americans. And I don't know if I really see it just yet and how wrong I was, you know. So you can get it right and you can get it wrong. But when it came to signing a new lead rider for Trek, Trek were very keen on Greg. But I'd already had two teams with Greg Minar. Aaron hadn't been winning races yet. He'd been on podium. So he was ready to pop. He was just ready to pop. He just needed the right structure around him to give mm -hmm. him what he needed and by that I mean you know an organized structure great support staff and first race you know first place with track and then did it again with us with YT and so that 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 I think you know was a was a good story in itself you know the you got you and Aaron going up have a quite a bit of history business history riding history it's been talked about for ages but the relationship you guys have was enough that you decided to, to mend fences and bring it back together over the years. What what's special about Aaron that it was that it's made you guys work so well together? 
just despite you know some some serious bumps in the road there we're we're extremely respective of each other's abilities um, so he in we're very different people there's no question about that but professionally he uh, gives me a lot of trust and I don't think you know there's anyone better on a on on a race bike right now as far as if I was another guy in the field that's the only one I'm worried about so I fully respect him on the bike and and what he does off the bike as well as far as trying to promote the sport what he does with kids with his courses and mammoth and other things that he does um, he's a he's matured a lot since the trek days he's a businessman now he's not just an athlete he understands his, his his net worth he understands his longevity he understands there's a need for a legacy he, he's, he's got that all figured out um and so you know that the bust up was not very good on either of us because we were really good friends when it happened we were pawns i believe in a, a bigger battle and um, and we were thrust into the spotlight, and it wasn't very pleasant for either either of us. The hate mail was pretty intense for a sport that's not that big compared to other sports. You know, it was pretty vile some of it. And you just have to not read it and say, look, I know myself. The people who know me know me, and that's how Aaron also felt. But we both had a hard time being grown ups and talking to each other after it happened. It took a long time. And the instigation for me was the chainless run in Lee again. I just wrote him an email that was titled, It Has To Be Said. And I wrote to him as a fan and said that what you did today was extraordinary and no one deserves the title more than you this year. I'm sorry we haven't been in touch, but know that I've been watching and respecting everything you've done on the bike since we stopped speaking. You don't have to answer me. I know you're a busy guy, but just know that when we see each other in the pits, I want to shake your hand. He wrote me back the most generous email, and from then we just reconnected like it had never happened. We both understood the context of it, and um, and here we are. You know, four World Cup seasons together, four World Cup wins. <coughs> it's a pretty cool record, and we hope to make it another one this year. Take him to the record six of all time. To have done five with him would be amazing. So that's what we're all pushing for this year. I'm you know, mixed emotions that the greatest of all time World Cup racer is Greg Menar and we have him on our side, so I'd rather be someone that I wasn't, you know, having such a great mateship with, but that's racing Greg and I both understand that's just our jobs, we've got to do our jobs, and Greg is e easily as capable as Aaron to win two or three races this year, and we know that. So it may not happen this year or next year, but one year, one of them's going to retire. But, you know, it's exciting times. and uh, But, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I love being in a team where we're winning, winning races, but I also love that development aspect as well. So while I'm excited for Aaron, I'm just as excited for Nico and Angel being the final today. And I'm just as excited when Matty Lehekorni got his first win in Brazil. You know, all those things, when you have faith in someone that no one saw and they get to where they wanted to get to, that means just as much as being with the winning guy. So... They, they both mean, mean the same to me. Right. Um, we'd originally sat down to talk mostly about World Cup racing. Mm -hmm. and, um, we can come back to that and wrap this up a little bit. Um, what mistakes were learned 
do you suppose from the sort of the bubble bursting in the late nineties, early two thousands? Um, I, I can't put the blame squarely on UCI marketing, but I think not fully understanding the value of the property, underselling it in a panic, and settling for a contract that didn't work. The Rocky Roads thing was a farce. It should never have happened. As I said, it's like table tennis being sponsored by pingpong.com. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. We're bigger than that. You, you're not going to get anywhere until a non-industry sponsor puts its name on the top of the start sheet and says, we believe in you. You're bigger than your own industry. That's where we needed to be and that's where we were. We lost our way, not understanding the net value of this property and how exciting it is. I, I am not lying when I say every single person I bring to this sport as a novice who's never seen it before and take them to the start finish line, or to the finish line, they're converted. My, my sister and her family came to Cairns two years ago. They'd never seen what I did for a living. They're up at five in the morning watching Red Bull. They were the first to contact me when, when Stevie passed. But, you know, the, these people suddenly became very invested in the sport they'd never seen before. So it has that addictive quality. Some sports do, some don't. And, and that's what I love about our sport. And so we undervalued that, the UCI marketing at the time, not now undervalued it in the 90s and were focused on other things. So they were going through the doping drama with Festina and the Tour de France. They had a lot going on. They were understaffed. They didn't have the resources to manage it. And there was no agency out there that was ready to take it. So it's no one's fault, but that's where it fell off. Now everyone gets it. Everyone sees the value. And uh, so with Red Bull TV, Mercedes, we're on a good roll and we should all be thankful and not get bitchy about why aren't we at Schleidemingen and all this sort of stuff. And just so everyone knows, the reason we aren't at some of these venues is there's no one putting their hand up to organize it. We, if we turn up with our trucks and there ain't no course tape and there ain't no money to run it, it doesn't matter if we want to race in Schleidemingen. So people have to learn that we are somehow guided by the people who are willing to take the financial risk of running a race. Because there's financially a strong model, but it still depends on how many people turn up, how many buy beer, how many buy t-shirts, how many do this, this, and this. So it is a risk for every organizer. They're not all running around in Lamborghinis. So it is a tough business. There's, you know, and so, so we, we're, so yeah, we'd all love to go to, there's probably another 15 venues I could name that I'd love to race at. But if they're not in the game, we can't go there. So they could save a lot of internet space if they stop asking the question, why don't we go here? That's why we don't go there. Um, but there are more and more bids coming in. The 2019 calendar will be announced mid-year. There are some exciting bids. I'm getting a nice feeling for North America coming back on strong. So people just hold their breath and there will always be some classics, just like there is in motorsport, just, and there'll be some newbies that we have to learn, like this one and La Bresse. The low breast track is pretty much like the 2005 or 2004 French Cup track. It's not the one we did before with the World Cup. So we have to learn that again. So I think it's good. I think it's good to have some classics, some people, you know, say, why don't we do like EWS and go to different venues every year? Logistically, that's a nightmare for me as a team manager to figure out how to do all of that and to have wheels and trucks and spares to go to South America, Australia, New Zealand, all these places. It'd be great, but it's not practical. It's not practical. You, you might one day get to a point like 
the big motorsports where we all just turn up or someone turns up from the organizer and puts everything in a shipping container and turns up in New Zealand for us and we get off the plane and unpack our pits like they do in those sports but we're no, nowhere near that so right now we have to work with the economy of scale we have and that means seven I hope eight races soon we're all aiming for ten races teams athletes and the UCI we're all aiming for that the cost of TV production if people could actually see how many people work here from Red Bull Media House there's more than 50 guys here that have to be transported every race from just that part then there's the installation crew there's the timing crew there's the UCI crew on top of everything anti-doping all these other different people have to come it's it's expensive to to, to add races um, so yeah, we'd love to probably race 10 World Cups a year, which gives you room to do crank works and other things if you choose to. My athletes don't choose to, other athletes do. Um, but I think, you know, that's that's a big part of it. But uh, that's a common theme I see, and it's uh, you want to just sort of get them all together and say, here's why. It is expensive. It's not just a couple of cameramen and a guy in a truck editing it. It's a big deal. And I think you learn that with Rob's you know, Rob's podcast, this, how much work goes into it behind the scenes. Um, and having personally not attended a World Cup last year um, is something that, that immediately struck me. And this is something I'd recommend to anybody who attends the races, if you can, to come a couple days early, but to wander around here on Wednesday night and Thursday and to see the sheer scale of the production crew and everything being put together mm. struck me as significantly larger than it was just two seasons ago yes and how much work when we everyone shows up on sunday or saturday mm. it's done yes but to see it being built is mm -hmm. um it and was was quite quite a quite a sort of eye-opening experience for me this week just the laying of the tv cables right just getting those up and down the hill and for longer tracks like fort william you know this week we see top to bottom the whole run yeah. There'll be no mystery of where did he lose time, whatever. You'll see the whole thing. Um, but Fort William's a really long track. And compounding with that last year, and I know it sucks that you just see the start house and the motorway and stuff, but the cable lengths to get up there, it's not practical. They don't have the cables that long. And then on top of that, where they did get to, someone cut the cables during the race, or the pre-race. So, you know, you had vandalism, you had other <coughs> issues. So people don't know that. And they see them, they say, why don't I show this? And, and you know, in Cairns, okay, so we couldn't show the whole track there either because of it's a, it's a rainforest, it's protected, you can't do certain things, installations in certain areas, and there's prickly bushes and bitey things. And then people say, well, why do we go there? Okay, that, you could argue that. But there are other benefits in going there that outweigh the negatives. So sometimes people forget that they're getting this free on their laptop. It doesn't cost them a cent, and they're watching the whole thing for free. If this isn't a pay-per-view. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of work, and it, it always can get better, and it will keep getting better, because I believe in the people that are on our path with us. The UCI, Red Bull TV, Mercedes, everyone wants the best for the sport. They're not in here to, to rape and pillage. They're here to make it work. So, you know, that's, that's the good thing for me. Martin... It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking a morning out of race day to chat with us. Um, some tremendous insight on behind the scenes and going on the UCI and running a team. Um, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Good luck today. Thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to Vital MTB's The Inside Line Podcast. Episodes drop every other Wednesday. Thanks to Jensen USA and Maxis Tires for the support. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Vital MTB.